from Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. This week, we speak with Palestinian-American writer and educator Mona Halabi about her new book, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. Mona Halabi visited Palestine repeatedly, but never lived in her homeland until 2007 when the Ramallah Friends School in the Israeli-occupied territories invited her to train their faculty for one year in the facilitation of class meetings and nonviolent communication. Mona's book is a memoir in two voices, her mother's Zakia and her own, the past and the present intertwined. Her mother wrote her letters during her year in Ramallah, Letters that told her story, her love for Jerusalem, and her loss of Jerusalem. She writes, quote, My story is a yearning to return to our homeland of Palestine. It sprang from the pages of the journal I kept during my year in Ramallah. Daily I wrote about my work at the school and the challenges teachers and students faced while living in a militarized occupied town. I wrote about my impressions of living in my homeland, a place I had inhaled since I was an infant, a place I had dreamt about and imagined for so many years. I spoke with Mona Halabi about her book, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestine Refugee Returns Home. She started by reading an excerpt from her memoir. In May 1948, when the British government ended its mandate in Palestine, my mother Zakiye was in her mid-twenties. A vivacious, intelligent, and charismatic young woman, she imagined for herself a future in the field of medicine, and eventually a young man and a family. But despite her ardent dreams and careful plans, life had mapped out another road for her. Her world came tumbling down when on May 14, 1948, she was driven out from her home under heavy shelling by the Haganah, a Jewish paramilitary organization. Everything I knew to be true, everyone I had close to my heart was gone, she once told me. Refugees are like seeds that scatter in the wind and land in different soils that become their reluctant homes. I started out with interviewing my mother because she was getting older and I wanted to have the stories of her childhood to pass on to my sons and eventually my grandsons. And so I interviewed her and that that's what I thought it was going to be, just a book about the family. Uh, And as I was teaching full time, it was very hard to put together that book. So years went by. And in the meantime, I got invited to train and teach uh, conflict resolution and nonviolent communication in Ramallah at the Ramallah French School for a year. And so when I went there, I realized that actually my mother's story and my year in Ramallah belonged in one book. And it wasn't going to be just my mother's past experiences in Palestine pre-1948. And of course, the gift for me was that my mother eventually accepted to join me while I was in Palestine, and we went to her family home. So all of that came together. 
her just starting with an interview of my mother and her stories from her childhood. So this is a story of your mother and your own story. You both ended up as refugees at different stages of life. And it was because of you that your mother finally visited Jerusalem like half a century later after she was forced out of Palestine by Zionists. Yes. Can you talk about your mom, her life in Palestine, and how she ended up in Egypt and then again had to leave Egypt to finally settle in Geneva with your father and the kids, including you? My mother was an incredible woman. I think I wouldn't be half the woman I am today had it not been for her guidance, her resilience, her love, her strength, and her humor. She was a true humanist. You know, she connected with people, people from all strata of life. You know, she was not intimidated by anybody. She grew up in an urban setting in Jerusalem, uh, in a middle-class family, very educated, but not wealthy. They rented the house. They never owned a house or property. She came from a very progressive family and a very modern Palestinian family. Her father was a secular Muslim, and her mother was Catholic, and they got married in 1918, which is astounding to me, you know, that uh, there was interfaith marriages that were acceptable in those days when it's still not acceptable in the present. Not only was it acceptable, but both families rejoiced in their children's marriage and wedding. And also another taboo that my grandparents broke down is that my grandmother was eight years uh, my grandfather's senior. So, you know, those days, a 38-year-old woman marrying a 30-year-old man was really frowned upon. But my grandmother had to provide for her family after her father died and her older brother died. And so marriage was not in the picture after after their death. And she worked. She was a, the principal of a an all-girl Ottoman uh, academic school and uh, where they taught reading and writing, not just embroidery and sewing. And my grandfather was also an educator. They met through Khalil Sekakini, the, the renowned Palestinian writer and educator. So my mother was born in that sort of a family where they sat at the dinner table and discussed ideas and the world of ideas and people and philosophy and religion. She and her brothers attended a German non-sectarian school, a secular school, which was also unusual because most of the middle-class children attended Christian schools, whether they were French or British the two big colonial powers in the Middle East. But my grandfather and grandmother did not want their children being raised by colonialist ideologies and uh, chose to have them go to a school which was uh, run by Germans and which was non-religious and so and was also co-educational. My mother grew up with friends and membership to the YMCA, where she learned from all of the wonderful lectures they had provided for the young people there. Muslim Christians and Jews attended. She sang in the chorus. She also loved the library there, where she borrowed tons of books. So she had a very cultured life, and she loved 
her Palestine. I mean, my Palestine, as she used to say, Palestine being Palestine in Arabic. She loved it with a passion and was devastated when things turned sour and the Zionist paramilitary groups like the Haganah and the Irgun were targeting the neighborhood that she lived in and other neighborhoods in West Jerusalem. Many houses were bombed and there was a lot of anxiety that she grew up with this time of her life. She was in her early 20s and was experiencing sleepless nights with bombings and so on. It became critical for her to leave. Her father asked her to take her brother Afif, who was traumatized by the bombings, to for them to go to Egypt, where they had an aunt, and uh, to stay there until things calmed down. And she was 23 years old yes. at the time, and she just took a suitcase yes. because she thought she's going to be back in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. Most people thought that, too, as they left. Nobody expected that they would never be allowed back mm-hmm. once the Jewish-Israeli state was created. It was a, a terminal situation. They could not return to their homes. And so she made her life in Egypt. She met my father, who was originally from Syria. His parents were born in Aleppo and had immigrated in the beginning of the 20th century. She married my father. I was born there, my sister too. And she, my mother rebuilt her life there. There were a lot of Palestinian refugees in Egypt, as there were in Syria and Lebanon, of course. And she had a good life. And sadly for her, as well as for all of my family, we lost our home in 1961 due to Nasser's nationalization of Egypt, and uh, we became political refugees. So my mother experienced losing her home a second time. And it was my first experience of becoming a refugee myself. I had been the daughter of a refugee, and I could add to my, my life experiences becoming a refugee. I was I was only 11, but I have very strong memories, and I'm writing a book about that at the moment. And uh, my father, through word of mouth and connections, was offered a position to teach with a multinational company in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. And we ended up in Switzerland, refugees leaving the sunshine of Egypt to the cold weather and of Europe. And we rebuilt our lives. And mm-hmm. thanks to my mother and father's strength and ingenuity and My sister and I were able to become successful and healthy adults as we got older. And again, it was in 1950 that Israel passed the absentee property law to make sure that the Palestinians who were forced out never come back. Yes, if they had gone to a country that was enemy of Israel, obviously there were some Palestinian refugees who ended up in countries that were not listed as such. And I know a family that ended up in Ecuador, where their relatives were, and they were able to regain the rights to their properties. They were not allowed back in, but they were able to continue to own their properties. But anybody who went to Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, or any other Arab country were not allowed back and were not compensated for the loss of their homes and properties. Mm -hmm. You write that your mother had to resign herself 
to her new status of refugee. And this was in Egypt. And then when she went to Geneva, she became refugee again. How did your mom deal with the loss of her homeland and the fact that she will never be able to go back to Jerusalem? That's an interesting question, Malihe, because I've talked to a lot of other people my generation that also had parents who experienced the loss of their homes in Palestine. And there's such a wide range. My mother, I would say, was able to balance her nostalgia and sadness and anger about losing her home with a tremendous love for Palestine, for its landscape, the the terraced hills with the olive trees, the beautiful beaches along the Mediterranean Sea, and the people, the people mostly, how good they were, how kind, how hospitable, how generous they were. And, you know, that inspired me because I wanted to write a book in which I balanced the hard realities of what's happening in Palestine at the moment with, of course, the checkpoints and the separation wall and all of the bureaucracy with permits and all of that. I wanted to balance that with the beauty of the country and the people. And my mother was an inspiration that way. That's how she coped. Let's continue talking about your mother. You took your mom to Palestine and you took her to her house. First, you didn't want to go. And then you ended up taking her there. Of course, before that, you went and visited the place. Can you tell us where she lived and what happened to her house after 1948? Well, she used to live in a neighborhood called Lower Ba'a. There was an Upper Ba'a and a Lower Ba'a. And these neighborhoods are maybe 20 minutes walk from the old city, from Jaffa Gate, where a lot of Palestinian middle-class professionals lived, educators, lawyers, uh, doctors. And my mother's family rented their house. And she lived there until 1948 and had not seen it for 59 years. While I was in Ramallah and we Skyped almost daily, she wrote me letters and I responded to her. During that time, I think she became jealous of how how wonderful life was for me in Palestine, how incredibly alive I became when I went there as I was searching for, you know, my identity as this refugee who lived in all parts of the world. I wanted to reconnect with my mother's homeland because it spoke to me. And so I, I felt, I think that she finally agreed because she wanted to live it herself again and see it herself, even though she had been very scared of facing, seeing her home and school and, and seeing people she knew who still lived in uh, the old city. So she came and we, we went. The present owners were not in the house, but the neighbor upstairs, an Israeli man uh, who was very kind to us, uh, had the, the key to the gate and let us into the garden. And it was amazing. I mean, to see my mother, who my mother, if you knew her, she she didn't stop talking. She was vivacious. She was animated. She was a chatterbox. But when she stepped onto that garden, into the garden, she became extremely quiet. 
And in her face, there was like a little smile and she touched the stones on the wall and she slid her fingers down the wrought iron bars that are on the decorative bars on the windows. And it was as though she was meeting an old friend again and she was relating to the friend. And I respected that. I, I stayed behind. I did not interfere with that kind of reunion for her. But eventually I asked her if I could take a picture of her. And, and if you have the book, you will see a picture of her. I took yeah. in front of the house and she looks so much younger and vibrant. And she's smiling, not just with her lips, but her eyes and her whole face is glowing. And at uh, that point, she was 85 years old? 84. 84. Yes, she was 84, almost 85. And she she was joyous, which surprised me, you know, because I had heard from other Palestinian people my, from my generation how bitter and angry their parents were when they went back and saw their homes. But my mother had created a new home for herself in in Switzerland, and she knew that that was Jerusalem and her home in Jerusalem was a, a closed chapter of her life. And seeing it again brought it to life. But, but I don't think she, she felt that bitterness anymore. She said to me how for her, she needed to return to her home. And she had realized that life went on. There's no way she can retrieve what she lost in that home, the beautiful uh, library in her parents' bedroom and all the beautiful objects that her family had collected over the years, that basically what mattered were the people she loved and they were not in that house anymore. Mm -hmm. And so she could let go of it. In fact, was very, very nice to the man who showed us the house, the garden. He you know, she asked him for his name, something I had not done myself uh, after I had met him. That, this was the second time I had met him. I never asked for his name, but that's the first thing my mother did. She asked for his name because she's relational, because she's uh, connected to people and has that humanity. My mother's story is that when she left, her father and brother were still in the house. Mm -hmm. And then her brother, who was alone one evening in the house, was abducted by the Israeli army on the 22nd of May, 1948. So a week after the creation of the state of Israel. So he left with the clothes he had on and that was it. He, he never got a chance to lock up the, the house and take the key. When I entered my mother's house, which is the final chapter of the book, I uh, see the key hanging on the back of the door and I want it so badly. I just really wanted it. And I said something to the present owner about wanting to make a duplicate, you know, but she did not respond. And she thought of it as a decoration. She, she's an artist and liked it on the back of the door as a decoration in the house. I felt very sad that I could not have it. But again, I'd have to remember what my mother always said. It's not things, you know, like chairs and tables and keys that matter. It's the people, the people. You asked your mother to share her story with you. And in the beginning, she was reluctant. But then she started writing you letters when you were in Palestine. You were there for a year and you stayed in Ramallah and you taught 
at the Society of Friends School. But then she started writing you letters and piecing together her life and how she was forced to leave Palestine. And you told her you wanted her to share that story because you wanted to share her story with your children. She writes in one of the letters, remembering all those sad events will not bring back to life my beloved Palestinian days. But maybe you're right about wanting to share my stories with my grandchildren and in the future with your grandchildren. You include some of the letters in your book. What's the significance of those letters? And what what did you find out about her and about her life in Palestine that she didn't know before? Well, the significance of those letters um, is that, to me, they bring to life Palestine pre-1948, and it gives a voice to my mother in this book, the book in which she is a main character. And I felt that here for the reader to hear, to read her words, it's like hearing her speak to them. You get a sense of the kind of woman, very affectionate, very loving. And also you find out about what her life was like, her parents, her her brothers, the school they attended, the cultural activities they were involved in. You get a sense of what social social life and what the what society was like that there was a palestinian very rich society in the urban centers like jaffa jerusalem haifa very often we don't hear about the refugees from the urban centers of palestine of course they're in smaller numbers compared to all of the agrarian population that was driven out that became refugees because Palestine was 70% agrarian uh, before 1948. So I understand. And so it was important to include her story said in her own words. I did not want to paraphrase her. And I was lucky that she wrote to me just those nine letters. And for me, those letters are gold. In one of her letters, She writes, uh, today I spent the morning at my American club study group. We talked about our identities related to politics, gender, race, and class. Very interesting. There were so many ladies from so many different countries, from Australia, Germany, Norway, Nigeria, Turkey, expats who spoke English. When it was my turn to introduce myself, I told the ladies that first and foremost, I am a Palestinian. Even though we do not have a recognized state, I proudly stand as a Christian Palestinian from Jerusalem. That's who I am. You should have seen the faces of some of the women when they heard me say Christian Palestinian. They asked me, when did you convert? I always have an answer ready. We never converted, you did. We're the original Christians. Where was Christ born after all? And then smiled shippishly. People say that to me as well when I tell them that I was raised a Christian, you know. It was interesting in my mother's family that because her father was Muslim and her mother Catholic, they offered the children a chance to choose their faith when they became adults rather than force them into one or the other. And of the three children, two married Christians and had 
Christian households. And one, my uncle Dahoud, who had become an atheist, married a Muslim woman and raised her children Muslim. And when I was in Ramallah, I talked about her, my Aunt Madiha, and her death. And I happened to have been a witness to the preparation of her body for burial, with, in, done in the traditional Muslim way, which was an honor for me because it was something I would never have had a chance to, to be part of. And in the same letter, Mona, she writes about what happened to her house. She said, after Dawood was kidnapped at gunpoint from our home, Israeli soldiers and civilians looted it. All of our belongings were stolen. Papa's leather-bound books, Mama's paintings, the furniture, even the pots and pans. Later, three Jewish families moved into the house and subdivided it. I did not even want to imagine the changes. Yeah. She never got to enter her house in present day. Now the house is owned by an American Jewish family. And the house is, as a whole, one individual habitat. It's not divided. And as I say in the book, I was very lucky that the house was still standing, that the interior is almost exactly the same. And the woman, the wife of the owner, is an artist and is of Tunisian descent. And because she enjoyed the arabesque elements of the architecture, she kept a lot of the house, the arches and all of that. You went to Palestine in 2002 with the Middle East Children's Alliance, and then you went back in 2006 for the second time. And at that point, you wanted to recover some of your family's history, and you started pouring over church records, baptismal, marriage, and death certificates. What did you find? And how challenging was it to search for these documents and piece together this history? Yes, it it was very hard. And perhaps, um, you know, all refugees in in the world listening today will will identify with that. Because when you've left a war-torn country, often it's very hard to find records because places have been bombed and you can't find them in City Hall, for instance. But you can find them in the mosques or the church records. These are the places. So I went to the old city and was uh, lucky enough to find at the Greek Catholic Church, which was the Roman Catholic rite that my mother belonged to, a wonderful priest there brought out the handwritten record. And I was able to find my grandmother's date of baptism and her siblings as well. And I had known they were born there and baptized there, but my mother did not have dates and things like that, but I was able to get all that information, which was wonderful. The one thing I I did not do, because I did not have somebody to help me do it, is go to Jaffa, to the mosque, and get the information about my grandfather, Adel Jaber, who is, by the way, originally, his family comes from Isfahan. And they were from the Safavid clan. And when the Zand dynasty took over, they became enemies of the government and they took refuge in Palestine, Ottoman Palestine. They were able to seek refuge there. And some of them went to Beirut and some to Jaffa. My grandfather's family went to Jaffa and it was in the 1800s. And they bought some orange groves and became orange grove farmers. 
your grandfather, your mother's father, yes. was also the publisher of Al Hayat, a daily newspaper. Yes, in um, the early which, was, which was printed in the early 1930s. Yes. And you were able to find the collated copies of the paper. I know, I know. I can't tell you how how delighted I was. I mean, I I never expected to be able to hold the newspaper in my hands. And where did you find it? At the Hebrew University's mm -hmm. uh, library, where you can find almost every newspaper from the region. Uh, and I was able, at first they gave me the microfilm, but that wasn't enough. I wanted to really touch the pages and, and see it for real. And they were able to get it from their storage units. And I took a lot of pictures of it. It was a delight to see that because my grandfather wrote the letter to his readers as the chief editor. So I can also hear his voice when he writes in there. And you say at the time that the paper was published in the 30s, one of the biggest political issues on every Palestinian's mind was British colonial rule in Palestine and its unavoidable consequences, Zionism. How did Al-Hayat cover the politics of the day or what was going on in Palestine at the time in the 30s? Well, what was uh, really revolutionary, if I can say that, I'll put it in quotes for this newspaper and what my grandfather was doing, is that he did not want his newspaper to uh, resemble a lot of newspapers of that era. And actually, I shouldn't say just that era. A lot of newspapers in the Arab world continue to have this position where they, they will align themselves with a political party and with a political rhetoric. And that it was mostly a way to propagate the propaganda, really. He believed and he had studied at the University of Geneva in 1911 uh, and had seen and read newspapers from all over the world. And he wanted his newspaper to be impartial in describing the situation that was happening and not to take sides, but to describe what was happening. And so I commend him on that because it was, was very difficult. And of course, he covered colonialism. Yeah. You're right. It was the Al-Burak uprising of 1929 that prompted my grandfather to start his own newspaper to help awaken and educate the Palestinian population. Al-Hayat, like other newspapers of the time, published a well-established national slogan to the Arab Palestinians who felt pressured to sell their land to immigrant Jews. And the slogan was, preserve your land. Yes, yes. You know, a lot of uh, leaders could see the writing on the wall. They could see that there was an increased uh, Jewish immigration, thanks to the British colonial government, the British mandate that allowed hundreds of thousands of Jews to immigrate to, to Palestine. Of course, many of them needed and wanted land. And so Palestinians who were in need of money were selling their land. And so a lot of the newspapers were warning Palestinians, do not sell your land, because uh, they, they could see what was happening with the expansion of the Jewish population and the imbalance 
which was existing before. There was a real balance before between Jews and Muslims and Christians. And now the population of the Jews was growing so much that it was becoming a problem, a problem that the Palestinians faced in 1948 when the war took place. Yeah, you're right. Almost 100 years after the Baroque uprising, the central issue remains the same today. Although the players have different names, the British have left, the Zionists have become Israelis, but the tensions which persist today are based on the same Palestinian fears and, of course, reality that Israeli settlements will deprive them of their homeland and shatter their hopes for political liberation and equality. That's right. Mona Halabi is a Palestinian-American educator, and I'm speaking with her about her new memoir, My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. We'll talk more after this short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihe Razozan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on Pacifica Radio. I have been speaking with Palestinian-American educator and writer Mona Halabi about her new memoir, In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. So let's talk about your own experience in Palestine. You went to Palestine for a year. You took sabbatical from your work. And you taught at the Society of Friends School in Ramallah, Quaker School. You worked with children. And as you said, your work has focused on nonviolent communication. How was it working and interacting with kids that were living under Israeli occupation? You write, I was hired to teach the students how to problem solve and resolve their conflicts in a direct and peaceful manner. That year, I grew as a teacher while witnessing firsthand the effects of the Israeli occupation on school-age children. What did you see in those children that manifested the impacts of the occupation and the, the violence inflicted by the Israeli occupying forces? You know, I was not prepared in any way to see these effects myself because I had taught in a small independent school in Oakland, Park Day School, where the children were generally privileged and lived in relative security and safety. So I arrive there and I meet the children who are loving and outgoing and who sort of adopted me right away. And I felt very much at home. 
but I could see their anxiety, constant anxiety. And it manifested in different forms. And one of them was in the classroom, they were unable to focus on their studies. They talked all the time. They were restless, agitated. They cried easily. In the playground, they could not resolve their conflicts by talking and brainstorming with another kid. This was an elementary school, right? Well, I happened to have been training the teachers in the elementary school, which was preschool to sixth grade. They also have another campus in Ramallah that is uh, the high school, the middle school and high school. So there were 650 children in the elementary campus. And in the playground, I could not see children relating peacefully. They were very aggressive physically. And when I held the class meetings with them weekly to try and have them realize what was going on, they were clueless. They had not been trained but in the conflict resolution and nonviolent communication. But not only that, I found that they were passive and unable to access critical thinking skills. That's when I also thought to myself, um, you know, when you are under duress, you cannot access the neocortex, which is the most sophisticated part of your brain, the part of your brain that does the higher level thinking, like classifying, summarizing, uh, analyzing. Instead, when you're under duress, you access your reptilian brain. The reptilian brain is the fight or flight. And that's what I saw in those children. And so all year, I taught them how to start to look at the problem they were having and to think of solutions. And it made a huge difference. In fact, I write about different stories in the book about children growing and able to not only solve problems, but have access to their feelings because they had no vocabulary for emotions. For instance, when a child would tell me that somebody beat him or somebody insulted him, I'd ask, well, how did that make you feel? And they would shrug their shoulders. They had no idea. And so I would then give them ideas and say, did it make you sad? Did it make you angry? Did it make you frustrated? And so they started to learn the vocabulary of emotions. I was aware that what the children were experiencing in the occupation and militarization of their town is very similar to what children in Darfur and in Ethiopia and Central Africa and so many parts of the world are experiencing. And I realized that it's a very, very big problem. And what the children are experiencing is going to last them throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. It's something that unless you are doing serious psychotherapy, you are going to have these scars. They also live with parents who are traumatized and who are frustrated and who have to resign themselves to feeling uh, helpless when they get to the checkpoints. And their children witness that. They see their parents having no power, being humiliated. And I think it has a very deep effect on children to see that their parents can't protect them. But you also write that I could tell how much the children at the Ramallah French School were loved by their parents. Yes. yes. And, And you write, despite the Israeli occupation, Palestinian children will grow up to become confident adults because their parents love them. 
Yes, they will become confident adults because of the love they are receiving. But I know that, and I know firsthand, even though I did not experience violence when we became family of refugees out of Egypt, is that you have emotional scars from what you've experienced in a traumatic situation that your your parents are dealing with. I think that, thank goodness, Palestinian parents are loving and caring and present for their children. And I hope that that will hold their children together to become these confident adults. There is another experience you had when you were traveling with your husband who visited you when you were in Ramallah. And on your way back from Akka in the north to Ramallah, you spotted overgrown cactus plants streaming by your window. And your husband said, there must have been a Palestinian village in this area. And you wondered which village it was. Can you tell us that story and how a metal hinge you found in the ruins ended up in Idaho? Yeah. yeah. Well, Palestinian farmers often planted cactus, sabir, as it's called in Arabic, which means also patience and endurance. Which was brought in from Spain. Andalusia, exactly. Andalusia. So those plants, the sabir, were used as barriers and fences around the farmers' properties because of the big thorns. They kept the animals in and they kept possible thieves out. So we saw, as we were driving, uh, an area that had a lot of cactus, and we saw ruins. And we, we knew that over 500 villages, Palestinian villages, were razed to the ground after their inhabitants were driven out in 1948 and 1949 and 1950. It was over several years. Uh, So I was very curious, David, too, and we stopped there and we walked in this beautiful place because it was, to me, it felt like sacred ground. It was quiet. And in the quiet, I felt I heard the village alive before the farmers were, were expelled. I sat there and appreciated the little bits of ruined walls that I saw. And my husband, David, found an old hinge that was rusty. And I told him, let's keep it as a memento of of this experience here. And I went home and I went online and found on on a website that shows all the villages that were destroyed. I found out that the village was called Kula, Q-U-L-A or C-H- O-L-A, Kola, and it was uh, from the time of the Crusaders and that it had had 1,200 inhabitants and a school and it was quite established and had a lot of land. The village was not far from the city of Lid and the airport, the present Ben-Gurion airport. So after I found out... And the village grew grains and the land that was irrigated was used for orchards. Yes, exactly. What we saw, David and I, was uh, only a portion of the land that we only were on the premise of of the village itself, where all the stones and ruins were. But there was a lot of land there that had been confiscated and, and taken over. So we, when we found out 
online what the name of the village was. I came back to California. No, but before that, yeah. you write on July 10th, 1948, in a systematic campaign to depopulate the villages of Palestine to achieve the Zionist dream, Israeli armed forces drove out the villagers of Kula. And in September of the same year, the Israeli forces bulldozed the village, leaving it in ruins and planted a forest of European pines to conceal its existence. Yes. But the cacti revealed that there was a village there. Yes, because the cactus kept growing regardless of the destruction of the village. Yes, the cactus did not get annihilated. And that is a a pointer for us to find the the destroyed villages. Um, And when I came back to the United States, I happened to be doing a search about Kula and found an article written by a Palestinian woman, a Palestinian-American, a professor in Idaho, whose mother and father uh, were from Kula. Her mother was 10 years old when they were expelled from the village. And so I contacted her and because I felt at that point that the rusty hinge belonged to her. It really was um, something I, we found on the ground there that she needs to have, not me. And uh, I sent it to her and uh, we became friends and she happened to have come and visited me. So it felt like it, it found its home, this rusty hinge, you know, and it was very sad experience to be on the grounds of a destroyed village because you just can imagine a life, a bustling life there, which isn't anymore due to a systematic process of elimination by the Jewish state where people were pushed and kicked out of their homes and then their homes were destroyed after them. There are so many stories in your book about your mother, your family, the time you spent in Palestine. One of the stories, for example, that was fascinating is about the fabric of the society in Jerusalem before 1948. What a vibrant, inclusive city it was and how it changed after 1948. Well, you bring up, of course, a part of uh, my my memories of Palestine, which are very sad, which is that it is not a vibrant, multicultural, multi-faith, multi-ethnic society anymore. I'm talking about Jerusalem in particular here, because after 1948, it has become more and more a religious city, uh, especially also after 1967, when uh, the entire city was occupied. And actually, I don't want to use the word occupied as much anymore. I, I heard Ilan Pape, the author, professor at Exeter University, Israeli professor who wrote The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, say that we, you know, we should not be using the word occupation because occupation implies a temporary status. He said we should use colonization because this is what's happening to Palestine. It's being colonized and colonization is years and years and years. So for me to have seen Jerusalem becoming much more narrow in its uh, population, in its population and its uh, 
in its ideologies because it, it has many, many fundamentalist, ultra-Orthodox families living there. So there isn't anymore this sense of openness. And the systematic campaign by Israel to expel Palestinians from their homes in yes. East Jerusalem. Yes, the, the Sheikh Jarrah incident, Sheikh Jarrah, Silwan, name, yeah. only one of them, Silwan, of course, especially East Jerusalem right now is targeted for Israel's expansion. And it is hard to see that because you, you don't see a response from the rest of the world, especially the United States, to stop Israel from this colonization and house demolition and house uh, expulsions. I don't want to end uh, our interview uh, on a negative tone because uh, there is a lot of that in the media. I also want to say that what I was enamored by when I was there is how resilient the people are, how the Palestinian people live every day, going to work, stopping at checkpoints, continuing to give their children love and affection and education. I feel the guilt that every Palestinian who ends up constructing their lives successfully outside of Palestine must feel, which is the guilt that we have left under duress. My mother's neighborhood was being bombed. It's not that she chose to leave. She, in fact, uh, was very, very upset about leaving. But, you know, you expect to return. And then when you're not allowed to return, you've lost your home and you live with that. And Palestinians who have remained there and continue to offer Palestine education and art and culture and history to continue to give some sense of a rich history to Palestinians who live there. I commend them and I loved being there for a year with them because I felt that that was my duty as a Palestinian Mm -hmm. to know my country and to do something about it. And the book is in some ways my doing something about it, my educating people about the situation, my uh, letting them in to my mother's journey, and also about the children who are being traumatized, and just the whole idea of being a refugee. What does it mean to be a refugee, to have a foot on one land and another foot on another land, you know? Mm. How do you reconcile that and create your, your, your identity? So what do you want people to come away with after reading your wonderful book, In My Mother's Footsteps? Well, I want them to know what Palestinian life was like, urban life was like pre-1948, because they are often quite amazed to hear me talk about my mother's life uh, and schooling and family. Um, And I want them to also hear what's happening now, what's... uh, there's a, a big contrast about you know, the, the difference between the two. I wanted to humanize Palestinians to the Western audience. And maybe also I wanted them to fall in love with the beautiful country and the beautiful people, just the way I was so, so embraced by them when I spent my year there. You say I wasn't born there, I never lived there, but I was from there. Yes, exactly. I was from there, and I wanted to honor that and the memory of all the people behind me 
who were from there. I just think we need to honor all the people in our lives who have, who have given us so much. And my mother was one of them, my grandparents too, my father. So that's important. Maybe that's sort of the homework of the last chapter in our lives is to try and honor the memory of places and people we loved. Until the story of Palestine. Of course, the story of Palestine is going to be told in different voices and has been told in different voices. And now I can add my voice to that. Mona, you have created a Facebook page focused on photographs of Jerusalem during the first half of the 20th century entitled British Mandate Jerusalemite Photo Library and have also collaborated on the interactive documentary Jerusalem, We Are Here. Can you tell us about these two projects? Yes, of course. The British Mandate Jerusalemites Photo Library on Facebook, I started seven years ago. And basically, it was in doing research for my book, because I wanted more information about the life that my mother led during those years. And I love old photographs, and I had digitized over 20,000 photographs of that period, of that region. So I started to post them with that goal of acquiring more information, but what it ended up having a life of its own because it ended up connecting a lot of Palestinians in the diaspora, children of children of children, you know, the descendants of all of these people that I'm posting photographs of. And so it's become a sort of a community of Palestinians all over the world, people in Buenos Aires, in Indonesia. It's amazing to see all the countries that tap into it. The other project you asked about, Jerusalem, we are here. The creator is Dorit Naaman who is a a Canadian-Israeli professor at Queen's University, and she's a film professor, and had created this project and wanted some support, and so I helped, and there are two other people doing it too. And, And it's interactive in the sense that it takes the viewer through the neighborhood of Katamon, which is in West Jerusalem, and it takes the people walking through this neighborhood and clicking on images and on audio or video and seeing footage of the owners of the home before 1948, interviews with them, photographs, biographical information. And so you're walking through Google Street technology uh, through the streets of Katamon as it is today, but you can click and have access to the past through the neighborhood. I was the the English narrator for that, and I helped with the mapping project, which is part of it too, identifying homes that belonged to Palestinians in Jerusalem. Mona, before we end, I would like you to read another passage from your book, and would you set it up for us? I will read to you a passage about dealing with the checkpoints uh, for the Palestinian population, as well as for me, a Palestinian-American. Living in Jerusalem meant being awakened at five in the morning by the loudspeakers atop the mosques that emitted a languid, melodious call to prayers. And on Sunday mornings, like the joyful laughter of children, the medley of church bells 
from the numerous churches of the old city drowned my voice. But the reality of living in Jerusalem also meant facing life under Israeli occupation, crossing checkpoints, navigating the separation wall, witnessing my people brutalized and dehumanized. My American passport was a source of conflicting feelings. On the one hand, it buffered me and gained me access to places not permitted to local Palestinians. But on the other hand, it separated me from the native population, hampering me from living as a true Palestinian. At times, I felt guilty for holding in my hands this little slim blue book with its golden eagle embossed on the front that allowed me many advantages. Mona Halabi is a Palestinian-American educator and writer. She is the author of In My Mother's Footsteps, A Palestinian Refugee Returns Home. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <laughs>